Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I just wanted to take the opportunity to invite you to a new Sunday night series we're going to begin on the first Sunday night of 2019. It's a series entitled 70 AD and the End of the World. In this study, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives and even do a study on the book of Revelation. My hope in this study is not to convince you of something you don't believe, but that we might just marvel at what God is able to do. So join us on the first Sunday night in 2019 for our study. All are invited to attend. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This message is entitled, Suspension of Disbelief. Under normal circumstances, I would ask, do you believe Jesus really rose from the dead? But because we live in unique times, I feel the better question is, do you really care? What do I mean by unique times? Well, that's a good question. I'm told that 50 years ago, arguments and debates over facts were more prevalent and mattered more than they do today. And since this can be considered conjecture, let me attempt to clarify where this opinion is coming from. Because we live in an age of mass media and television, entertainment through pop culture is a constant norm. We are constantly presented with fictional and much of the time impossible stories in which we enter into what psychologists call a suspension of disbelief. A suspension of disbelief is when an audience member puts aside what is possible for the sake of a story. For example, I don't know if you like watching the show The Walking Dead, but we know zombies are a scientific impossibility. It's scientifically impossible for a body once it's begun to decompose to walk around. Our bones are held together by cartilage, and once that cartilage begins to deteriorate, our bones would simply slip off themselves. So for a body that's decomposing to pose some sort of threat to society, is ridiculous. And yet, we're still able to watch these shows and movies and not only be entertained, but suspend our disbelief in order to enjoy them. Studies are being done to determine whether or not our constant suspension of disbelief or exposure to it is actually hurting our culture. See, stories about witches and vampires and demons and dragons, etc., they are deeply ingrained in pop culture. The purpose of these stories is to give an audience member scenarios where they are given the opportunity to explore ethical philosophies. In other words, we're given stories where the characters are presented with supernatural, difficult decisions, which in turn help us to develop what is right and what is wrong. And while this can be beneficial to work our imaginations, it can also be very detrimental to our internal compass. Of course, the argument can be made, well, if we're talking about scientific impossibilities, what about all those miracles in the Bible? to which there is an easy explanation for justifying the accuracy of Scripture. Since God created the world and thereby the rules of physics, he's able to change them whenever he wants. So the, to answer the question, what about all those scientifically impossible miracles in the Bible? The answer is, well, God did it, not us. God can do that. We can't. As a result of living in a society that is obsessed with pop culture, however, we constantly enter into a suspension of disbelief. And when we do this, we more closely align with Pontius Pilate and his question in John chapter 18, verse 38, when he asks, what is truth? One of the greatest fabrications of our time is the idea of personal truth. You see, our culture promotes the idea that it doesn't have to be true just as long as it's true for you. So to be presented with teachings like Jesus raising from the dead, we spend less time on questions like, well, is there any evidence to support this belief? And we spend more time on questions like, do I like this information? 
Modern belief is centered not around does natural law allow a resurrection to be possible, but questions like, do I care? Do I find this helpful? Does this benefit me in my life? Which is why our culture has developed a response to the gospel which sounds like this. If it helps you, that's great. Just don't impose your beliefs on me. You see, in order for people to respond to the gospel like this, they must be absorbed in a culture which promotes the idea that the only truth that matters is the truth that you find helpful. In our culture, truth is centered around how something makes us feel. So instead of using scripture to develop a moral compass, people have given, been given enormous freedom to construct their own opinions about life and make their own moral decisions. So in short, our culture doesn't spend much time considering truth, but on considering their version of the truth. Which, we could attempt to dismiss this principle and blame the millennial generation, which, by the way, I belong to, but Scripture doesn't give us that option. You see, the reason being is because we are called to minister to the communities in which we live. So we would do well not to, to, to dismiss these attitudes and isolate ourselves from the world in order to preserve our version of the truth, but to become familiar with what the culture believes and supports. We have to learn how to present the gospel to a constantly changing culture. The message doesn't change, but how we deliver it does. And the ultimate premise we must use to reach our culture is by establishing what real truth is. See, there's no such thing as your truth. There is simply the truth and your opinion. And we get into trouble when we allow the line between the two to dissolve and we, we come up with your truth. But look at the reality that each of us will die one day. While we can have opinions about this reality, death doesn't really care how you feel about it. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. But there I go again, suggesting we let the Bible shape our truth. I know it might sound callous to disregard people's feelings. It's just extremely frustrating to spend less time on what the facts are and more time presenting the case on why the facts matter. Now, don't mis misunderstand me. It's not unreasonable to consider how something makes you feel. It is, however, unreasonable to expect the truth to change because you don't like how it feels. Now, if you're unable to concede this point, then at the very least, consider how the resurrection made those who witnessed it feel. I believe if we consider their response to the resurrection, we, Lord willing, can begin to see why it matters to us. So if you will, turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. This is what it says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. She ran out and, and, and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there and he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But as Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so she went, uh, as she wept, she stooped, stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, then tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have yet, I'm not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brethren and say to them, I have ascended to the Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, as we've read your word, I pray that you would reveal to us the truth. That you would open our eyes so that we might see you as the resurrected Lord. And that, Father, in turn, through that revelation that you have revealed yourself to us, that we might see why this is so incredibly important, especially in the culture in which we live. I pray, God, that you will do these things, that you will show us your great love, that your great nature and, and your great mercy and grace that's fallen upon us because of the resurrection of Christ. Father, and I pray that you would use me to deliver a message that is powerful and life-changing to all who might hear it. I love you, Father, and I thank you for this opportunity to share your word once again. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in this passage, John tells us that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early on the first day of the week. In other words, this is the first opportunity that Mary could have gone to the tomb. And so, uh, keep in mind, according to the Jewish law, it's a sin to do anything on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So at the exact moment that the Sabbath is over, Sunday morning, Mary goes to the tomb. Now, the other gospel gives us some uh, uh, some insight on what her purpose was in going to the tomb. Before we get into that, we should also address that it's difficult to believe all this happened according to one woman's testimony. However, the other gospels help us out there as well. Matthew and Mark tell us that Mary Magdalene was accompanied by Mary, the mother of James, and of course Jesus. We see Mary was not alone in the book of John because in verse 2 of chapter 20, Mary Magdalene says to the disciples, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him, showing that she wasn't alone. Now Luke tells us the purpose for their visit was to reapply the burial spices to the body since Jesus was buried in a hurry. Except when they got there, the stone had been rolled away and his body was missing. Now whenever we're presented with the information we're not ready for, we always look for a way to explain what we're seeing. For example, in illusions where... I might magically move a pencil from one hand to the other. Your mind begins to rationalize how I did it, and you look for an explanation, which is a significant point that we're not able to suspend disbelief forever. Sooner or later, we begin looking for an explanation. So, I mean, that's pretty pretty significant. In the case of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they were presented with the fact that Jesus was buried in the tomb and that he was no longer there. The reasonable explanation is that somebody must have taken the body. 
Notice they didn't jump to the conclusion that Jesus had risen from the dead as he said he would. No, the explanation they came up with is a rational one, that someone must have stolen his body. Upon receiving this news, verse 3 and 4, John tells us that Peter and the other disciple, whom we believe to be John himself, ran to the tomb. Now, something comical to me is that John mentions that he outran Peter, and I can only speculate uh, as to why he put this in there, um, but I think it's because he wanted it recorded all, for all time that he actually won the race, but, you know, I don't know. Then again, you see something interesting. He arrives at the scene first, but he doesn't go in, and he puts a lot of, of um, significance on the fact that he doesn't go in. His amazement for what he sees inside keeps him outside. And when we read further, we can begin to understand why. You see, Peter arrives in the scene, and John won't go in, but he, he uh, Peter barges right in and inspects the burial linen. Now, John records that the face cloth, which has been on his head, which was on his head, it was not lying with the linen wrappings, but it was rolled up in a place by itself. Now, notice John spent some time explaining the condition of the linen wrappings. Now, it's important that we don't attempt to make this passage of Scripture say something that it doesn't, so we have to carefully investigate his description of the burial linen and, and the handkerchief, as he, as he put it, the, the thing that was wrapped around Jesus' head to keep his mouth closed, essentially. There is much debate as to the question of what condition these burial cloths were in. Did Jesus supernaturally transpose himself out of the burial cloths and linen so they were left in a complete wrapping as if you know the body just dematerialized? Or was it simply taken off and folded up neatly? While it's an interesting conversation starter, it's neat to talk about, I personally think the greater point has to do less with the exact condition of the burial cloths and more with what John saw that caused him to believe and, and what he believed. In other words, it's not what condition the burial clothing was in, but that it was folded up that led him to question whether robbers really took the body. What robber, who comes quickly to move Jesus' body, would worry about unwrapping him and folding up the burial clothes? John stood at the entrance of the cave because the sight of this burial clothing caused him to begin wondering what in the world must have happened. So much so that he doesn't initially go in. He only goes in after Peter goes in. Notice, though, in verse 8, he says, The other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw, and he believed. Believed what? Well, in verse 9, he says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Now, he's writing this to signify that he and Peter didn't yet have belief in a resurrected Lord, but simply believed that someone had taken the body and left the clothing folded up. Strange, but it's not impossible. This is important when we consider not only how the historians paint the disciples as eager to spread a lie, but also to place importance on how much they must have felt at this moment. John tells us they didn't go into all the world and preach the resurrection of Christ. No, they went to their own homes. This shows us they were extremely discouraged at this point that not only was their Lord and Master crucified, but they didn't even know where his body was. This is extremely important to grasp because how they felt was important. Jesus told them in John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will leap, weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your, your grief will turn into joy. It's vitally important that we see them in their misery and not jump to the conclusion that they immediately believed that there was a resurrection at the first availability because they approached this situation as we would have. They were skeptical. We would be deeply disheartened if we were in their situation. Seeing this correctly enables us to understand that the transformation of their grief turning to joy when they saw, not the burial clothes, 
but the resurrection resurrection of the Lord himself. It enables us to understand and, and to sympathize and empathize with them. Consider this. If they believe Jesus was alive at this point, why was Mary still outside the tomb weeping? Listen, she was weeping because Peter and John left discouraged and disheartened. I know, and maybe I just stand in stark contrast with a lot of preachers that say, you know, they believed in the resurrection. But I just find that hard to believe because they went home. They didn't go to, to Jerusalem and preach. He's alive. He's alive, as they later did. I mean, I think what's going on here is that they were feeling sinned against. I mean, in a cruel way that someone would come and take the body of Christ while they were confined to their homes during the Sabbath. A Gentile could have easily done this. But see, the story gets even better. John tells us that while Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, she looks in and she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the foot, where the body of Jesus had been laying. Now, because of their response, I'm led to the conclusion that she was unaware that these were angels. And, and she put that truth together later on. Because they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she doesn't respond, oh, an angel. Tell me where they've taken Jesus. She says, "Because I'm weeping because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. You see, we see one of the most amazing miracles in the Bible. And, and I'm just going to throw it out there. Not only is Mary confronted with a resurrected Lord, she's unable to recognize him at first. Now, great links have been made to explain why she didn't recognize him. Some say it was because he was standing behind her the whole time and she never turned around to see who it was until he called her by name, which is not actually what John says. He says that she turned around and said to him, you know, thinking he was the gardener, have you taken him away? You know, because I'd, I'd really like him back. We get to see one of the most amazing miracles in the Bible. And, and of course, the resurrection is the greatest miracle, but here is a pretty great one. Keep this in mind. Not only is she confronted with Jesus, she's unable to recognize him at first. Some, like I said, some say this is because she, you know, standing there. He was standing there behind her. She never turned around. Others say it's because her eyes were full of tears, which blurred her vision. But see, the other gospels help to explain this when Jesus confronts the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It, it, the scripture tells us that he, he meets them while they're, they're solemn and they're downtrodden. And they, they, they were unable to recognize him as Jesus, but they saw him as a stranger. And as they walked along the road for a long time, he explains to them the Old Testament prophecies and the reality of the resurrection. And they're so struck by this conversation that they invite him into their home. He was going to go further. They said, no, please come in, come in and eat with us. And as he's eating with them, Scripture tells us that he reveals himself to them. He was in their presence the whole time, but they didn't recognize him until he revealed himself to them by opening their eyes. Now, there are great implications in this passage regarding how to recognize the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, the reality of the resurrection has always been right in front of us. Yet, because we are lost in a culture that is in a suspended uh, disbelief, we might even believe that the resurrection is true, but we don't care because we don't see how it's relevant to us. Listen, I personally grew up in a pastor's home where at the very least I spent 18 Easter Sunday mornings hearing about how Jesus had risen from the grave. I mean, that's the very least. We talk about it all the time. But until God opened my eyes to the power of the resurrection, I was unable to tell you how it mattered to me. 
Sure, Jesus is raised from the dead, but I don't see how it's relevant to my life. It's then that God opened my eyes and shows, showed me how the resurrection matters. Not just in general, but in how it matters to me. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And through that resurrection, if I have faith in him, I will be raised. Death no longer has dominion over me, but I will live forever, for I have inherited eternal life. Why does the resurrection matter, we might wonder? Well, Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. Keep this in mind. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What Paul is saying in this passage is if the resurrection didn't happen, not only are we still in our sin, but we have heaped on further insult to God because we have preached something that didn't happen, that we should be pitied above all men. Mary suspected, as we would have, that Jesus was the gardener. Not, hey, it's you, Jesus. She thought he was the gardener and begged him to tell him where the body was taken to. Now, it's at this moment that Jesus calls her, no longer woman, but by her own name, Mary. Jesus said in John 10, 3, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Leads them out of what? Out of disbelief. You see, when Christ calls your name, your eyes are and ears, they're opened and you're able to cry out in belief. Consider for a second how this reality of a resurrected Lord must have made Mary feel. But then look at his response. John tells us she cries out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. We get to see a real picture of when Jesus described his disciples' grief turning to joy. She'd come to discover the truth that Jesus wasn't dead. He had raised from the dead. And in that moment, everything changed for her. He wasn't dead. He was alive. If he was alive, then everything he said was true. He truly is the resurrection and the life. And not only did he defeat death, but we, through it, through belief in him, we will defeat death too. And so we see her cling to Jesus as we would. But we don't see what we would hope to see out of Jesus. He doesn't tell her, you know, I'm so glad that we get to be together again. Nor does he tell her, I'm so happy you see how relevant my resurrection is to you. Nor does he tell her, your belief in me is all that matters. No, he tells her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You see, Jesus' words stand in stark contrast to our culture's belief that the only truth that matters is truth that benefits your life. See, the Bible teaches that the truth that matters is the truth and not your truth. Jesus didn't give her plenty of time to evaluate her feelings and consider what this meant for her. No, he gave her a job to do. 
He told her, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. And thus, John tells us that Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that these things he said to her. Now, I know we could sit around and talk about the evils of our culture all day long. In truth, it's worse than we commonly acknowledge. For example, in our suspension of disbelief, we are consistently given stories of superheroes who can do supernatural things. And while this might not be happening to you, at least acknowledge that it's possible to desensitize us to the works of God through the use of pop culture. In Superman versus Batman, Superman dies and raises from the dead. What's the big deal? Scripture teaches us there is an Antichrist that is coming that will do miraculous things. And if we're desensitized to these amazing things, I often wonder if we'll even recognize him for who he is. But there I go, sounding like a crazy conspiracy theorist. My point is not that we should abstain from culture, or even that we should criticize it for, for the promotion of our suspension of disbelief. My point is that we shouldn't suspend, suspend disbelief any longer because of how we feel about the truth. God presents us with the truth. Superheroes are real, or at least one is. Jesus Christ, for he really rose from the dead. Not in a comic book, but in reality. You see, feelings aren't unimportant. Our feelings do matter. Which is why we're able to recognize the supernatural transformation of the disciples when they moved from grief to joy. But regardless of how we feel about the truth, or whether or not we like it, the truth is still truth. And truth doesn't slow down to consider our feelings, nor does it give us the freedom to decide what is true for us. We can have our opinions about Scripture, but in the end, our opinions don't matter. Scripture teaches us that not only is death a reality, but that we will one day stand before God. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. You see, God isn't going to judge us by our version of the truth, but the actual truth. What's the truth? Good question, Pilate. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so for everyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the message. Don't spend so much time forming your opinions about Scripture. Instead, recognize that Scripture presents the truth. Not only has Jesus raised from the dead, he's given us a job to do. We are to proclaim to the whole world that Jesus is alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 tells us why this is important. For since by a man, man came death, so by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ we will all be made alive. And so I'd like to close by simply saying this. Don't suspend belief for the sake of a story. Instead, surrender to belief for the sake of your soul. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. 
Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Runge in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.